Amen. If you would, join me in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Today we are looking at the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast. Um, Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. Uh, So if you would, uh, stand in honor of God's word. And let's dive in. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch on its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things since the creation of the world. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I pray today that you would inspire us to know that we can make a difference in this world for Christ. Uh, That every single person here, if we would surrender our hearts and our lives to you and commit our ways to you, that we really can change this city, we can change this world for Uh, the cause of Christ. And so, Father, I pray today that you would encourage us in this way through your word and through the teachings of Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's a story of a guy named uh, Dr. William Leslie, and he uh, was a missionary who went to the Democratic Republic of Congo in 1912 and uh, went there, uh, stayed there for uh, many, many years and ministered to the tribal uh, people there. And... uh, tried to share his faith, uh, tried to uh, teach them the stories of Scripture, uh, but uh, he uh, left after about 17 years there and returned back home after having a bit of a fallout with the tribal leaders, and nine years later, he died. And uh, to his knowledge, when he left, uh, there, there, were, there were no churches, uh, there uh, was no real gospel work uh, present there when he left, and so uh, he would have thought that he failed as a missionary. But in 2010, a guy by the name of Eric Ramsey uh, went to that same area, he and a team of other missionaries, and he writes, when we got there, we found a network of reproducing churches through the jungle. Each village had its own gospel choir although they wouldn't call it that. They wrote their own songs and would have sing-offs from village to village. They found a church in each of the eight villages they visited scattered across 34 miles. Ramsey and his team even found a thousand-seat stone cathedral in one of the villages. He learned that this church got so crowded in the 1980s with many people walking miles and miles to attend that a church planning movement began in the surrounding villages. They have no Bible in the Yanzi language, and so they use a French Bible to teach the Word of God. And Dr. Leslie would go in to that village in 1912. He would simply teach Bible stories, taught tribal children how to read and write, and talked about the importance of education and shared the teachings of Jesus. And then he left thinking that he had failed. This, I believe, captures in a historical example the heart of what Jesus' parable is all about. Dr. Leslie was a seed that went into the Congo, and he spread the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus. He had no idea 
of the impact he made and, and left probably feeling very much like a failure. And yet a mustard seed had been planted. And when other missionaries went there, they found a fully grown tree in its place, a network of reproducing churches. This is an example of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ where one person goes in, and even if he doesn't feel like he's successful, even if he doesn't see success, God works in the midst of that to permeate that culture and transform it with the gospel. Today I want to talk about the power of God's kingdom. I want to talk about the nature of God's kingdom. So today we look at four lessons on the nature of the kingdom of God. Four lessons on the nature of the kingdom. Lesson number one, the kingdom seems harmless. The kingdom seems harmless. Jesus begins his parable with a parable of the mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. A mustard seed was the smallest commonly planted seed in that part of the world. Something that seems insignificant, powerless, not much to it, unimpressive, just a seed. Just a mustard seed. In our context, we might speak of an acorn uh, being planted and would produce uh, oak trees and things of that nature. If you look at our, our uh, property, you see all these beautiful trees that we have on our property all beginning with a seed. Jesus is giving his disciples a parable so they are not swayed by their unimpressive start, by their unimpressive beginnings. God tends to work in such a way, he starts with humble beginnings, he starts with the fewest, and that's how the kingdom of God began in the work of Christ. God works through humble beginnings. He starts with a wandering nomad named Abram. Abraham, uh, he's out wandering and God begins to speak to him. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make out of you a great nation and through you I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. At one point in the Bible, it basically says that Abraham is so old, he's as good as dead. And this is where God's going to start. Someone who's too old, he might think, and God's going to start with him and use him to transform the world. He starts with Israel. He chose Israel because they were great, because they were impressive. No, he said, because you were the fewest out of all the nations in the world. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, it says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping covenant, his covenant of love to thousands of generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. This is how God operates. All the time, this promise, this covenant seems to be under threat, like it's not going to work out. And all the time, God is working, God is moving, God is sustaining. The books of 1 and 2 Samuel record the rise of this kingdom uh, known as Israel. And by the end, you've got stories of David, you've got the splendor of Solomon, you've got the beauty of uh, the temple and all of this uh, wonder of God's power and work. But it all begins with a barren woman entering the, uh, the tabernacle, entering the courts of the Lord, and she is so distraught by the taunting of other people, she's so distraught she stopped eating. Her name is Hannah, and she's crying out before the Lord, and the Lord hears her prayers and gives her Samuel as her son, the namesake of, of course, First and Second Samuel. Samuel would go on to anoint kings. He's a kingmaker, and he goes to Jesse, 
Okay, so it goes to Jesse, and Jesse has these sons. He says, one of your sons is going to be kings. He says, okay. And so he brings, he brings his sons out. He says, nope, none of them. Imagine being David. He, he was totally left out. And he said, don't you have any other sons? He said, well, sure, David, but he's kind of the run of the litter. You don't want him, right? Yeah, go, go get David. He's going to be the king of Israel. He's going to be the one after God's own heart. He's going to be the giant slayer. And so God works through David. When it was time for a Messiah, God sent Mary and Joseph to a little town called Bethlehem, of which Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So what is Jesus telling his followers in, hey, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that grew into a plant. He's saying, hey, don't, just because you look around and you're not impressed with the numbers, don't be dissuaded. Don't be concerned when you look around and see weakness because that means that God has the enemy right where he wants him. God has the enemy right where he wants him when we are at our weakest As they looked around and they saw no army, they saw not even an elite force, they didn't see religious experts in their midst, they just saw a scraggly band of nobodies, tax collectors, zealots, uh, fishermen. Uh, If you follow Peter for any period of time, he'd stick his foot in his mouth. I mean, they're just absolute mess. They're afraid uh, at the cross. All of his 12, his closest followers abandoned him, run away. He only got the youngest, the the teenager, uh, John and and the women there at the cross. It seemed like, you know, his kingdom was going to be defeated. Such was the unexceptional beginning of Christ's kingdom. The Roman Empire had an enemy at their gates, and they didn't even know it. They had an enemy at their gates, and they didn't even recognize it. Had their watchmen looked out and saw a military leader with a vast army, they might have raised an alarm and sent troops out and done something about it, But ultimately, they had no idea. Hannibal of Carthage started with an army of almost 100,000. And he warred against Rome, and yet he was defeated. But as the watchman looked out, all he saw was a crucified man hanging on a cross. Nothing to be concerned about. We killed him. Movement over. Story over. Couldn't have known that he'd already conquered the, the person on the cross next to him. He said, surely today you'll be with me in paradise had no way of knowing that he had already conquered one of his own Roman soldiers who said, truly this is the son of the living God. Had no way of knowing that his kingdom was already starting to advance even as he hung lifeless on the cross. He just saw seed. He saw mustard seed. He was unimpressed. But Jesus himself said, very truly I tell you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. In other words, he's laying siege to the kingdom of darkness of this world, whether people recognize it or not. In a few weeks, the entirety of his kingdom would gather in this small room for a prayer meeting. They'd gather in this small room. for They they couldn't even fill our choir loft if they wanted to. That was how small this band of followers was at that point. In time, 
I think the point is, as we look around and we sometimes we feel like a mustard seed. We feel like we can't make a difference. We feel like we can't do any good. Maybe it's just us. Maybe it's just a few other people gathered in prayer. Maybe it's just a few other people going out on a prayer walk, going out trying to share the gospel. Maybe we feel small and insignificant. But it's in that moment that God's power is made perfect. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 and following, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Man, if we would just adopt that mindset to not ever be swayed by whether or not we have a group of people with us or how impressive our movement is. If we just said, hey, his power is perfected in weakness. In him I'm made strong. That would move us to greater faithfulness and obedience. So Jesus is basically saying, don't be discouraged if you're a mustard seed because great growth comes from the mustard seed, which brings us to our second lesson. The kingdom surprises in growth. The kingdom surprises in growth. So you've got this mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field, though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds can come and perch in its branches. The small mustard seed turns into a great garden plant, uh, becomes a tree, which ultimately is like a tall bush. And we think, well, of course, that's what seeds do. They grow. And we know this to be true. Growth is inerrant to the nature of a seed. Seeds grow. But even though growth is expected, growth can still be surprising, right? Uh, growth can still be surprising. How many of you have gone out and you've mowed your lawn and come back a couple of days later and like, oh, well, it's time to mow again, right? Like you knew that's what grass does. That's the nature of grass. It grows, and yet sometimes we're still surprised at growth. Uh, how, how many of our students before, probably today maybe even, you've had people, Mom, just look at how fast you're growing. You're getting so big. And people say that all the time. We're like, what do you expect me to do? Be Benjamin Button and go the other way, you know? I mean, that's what happens. That's what happens, right? We grow. Growth is expected, and yet it still surprises. How many of us, okay, you get a little bit older, how many of us one day you looked in the mirror and you said, who's that old person staring back at me in the mirror? That, that happened fast, right? Life happens fast. Growth is expected, and yet it is surprising. The kingdom of God is seemingly small like a seed, but it also, like a seed, uh, grows. It's expected, and yet it is surprising. That small band of disciples that couldn't fill our choir load that had that little prayer meeting, they went out from there and they began to proclaim the gospel of Christ in different languages, intelligible languages that people could hear and understand. And people heard them and they said, what should we do? Peter said, hey, you need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so that day, thousands of people were added to their number. Thousands of people trusted in Christ on that day. The gospel spread outside of Jerusalem as Gentiles received the gospel and they gave their allegiance to King Jesus. And so then you move from addition to multiplication as they go out with that message. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, rich and poor, young and old, all are turning to Christ and giving Christ their ultimate devotion and allegiance. Until about uh, 75 years later, 75 years later, we have this 
letter, this, I think, kind of a humorous letter from Pliny the Younger. Okay, you can just Google it. Uh, Pliny the Younger, his letter to uh, the Emperor Trajan. I'm going to read just a selection of it. Uh, but Pliny the Younger, stationed in Bithynia, northern Turkey, was a Roman governor, kind of like Pilate, 75 years after Jesus was executed. And he wrote to the Emperor Trajan for advice on how to deal with this pesky movement known as Christianity. Okay, he, he had uh, a lot of Christians all of a sudden. He's trying to figure out what to do. He says, therefore, I postpone the investigation and hasten to consult you. For the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, and, every, and also of both sexes will be endangered. He thinks that people are endangered by this new movement known as Christianity. For the contagion of this superstition, talking about Christianity, has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. But it seems possible to check and cure it. <laughs> Good luck with that, Pliny. Okay, and Jesus uh, used this analogy of the mustard seed. Pliny the Younger, who sees it as a negative thing, he uses the analogy of a contagion. Something today we know a little bit of something about, right? Uh, of how it spreads. And that's how he sees Christianity. It is spreading all over the Roman Empire. And you have to love uh, this translation of what Pliny said. He said, still I think it can be halted and things set right. A quote that did not age well. What Pliny could not have imagined was that the Roman Empire would cease to exist while Christianity would continue to spread around the world and today has billions of adherents. How does this happen? How does it happen? How does the most powerful military force in the world ultimately die out while this scraggly band of disciples and their movement around a carpenter from Nazareth, how does that movement continue to succeed all around the world? Even to this day, going into places and totally transforming those places with the gospel, how is that possible? Because the Bible says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. It is the power of God. There's not a greater power in the world than the power of God who brought everything into existence, who raised his beloved son from the dead. And he says that same power is at work in you when you go out and you share the message of Christ. We may not understand how dangerous this message of uh, the gospel is, but I can assure you that world leaders around the world do. 52 countries, 52 countries, according to the voice of the martyr, um, has banned or severely restricted possessing a Bible in their borders. There are covert operations. You want to know the cool part of missionary work? If you want to know the cool part of missionary work, like Jason Bourne kind of stuff, right now there are covert operations around the world to smuggle Bibles in to those nations. World leaders are afraid of this gospel being shared, and somehow we're afraid to share it. World leaders are afraid of it because they know it's transforming power. They know it grows. They, grows. they know it spreads. They know it transforms. Why don't we share it more? Lesson number three. The kingdom permeates and transforms. Notice the second parable Jesus tells them. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through 
the dough. So he tells one that would relate to the daily work of the man in their culture and now uh, of the woman in their culture. To, and if you want to know the difference, well, what is the difference between the first parable and the second parable? I like something D.A. Carson said. He said the difference is in the first parable it talks about the extensive growth of the kingdom. The other parable illustrates the intensive transformation of the kingdom. So the kingdom not only grows and expands, but it radically transforms and permeates everything it touches, just like yeast. Jesus is claiming this is how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God is like this. When the good news of the kingdom reaches a person, that person is radically transformed. When the kingdom of God washes up on the shores of a nation and people go out and they begin to spread it, that nation is impacted by their faithful witness. And if you read Revelation, you know that the way ultimately God's kingdom advances through the world is through the faithful unto death witness of his people. There's an invisible quality to the spread of the kingdom of God. Kind of like in the story of Dr. Leslie Williams. Okay, Dr. Leslie, he goes, he doesn't see progress. And let me just tell you, let me just encourage you, a lot of times when you're faithful to the Lord and you're obeying God and you're doing exactly what you know God is telling you to do, I want you to know something. A lot of times you don't feel progress. I can promise you when Jesus was hanging on the cross, they didn't feel like that was progress. His disciples didn't. And yet this is how God tends to work in society. There's an invisible quality to the advancement of the kingdom. Transformation is often quiet and subtle because it advances through changed hearts, changed lives, changed minds, and changed behavior. A criminal on the cross receives the gospel. Uh, The uh, Roman centurion receives the gospel. A little bit later on, uh, Cornelius will receive the gospel. Lydia's heart's open to the gospel. The kingdom is spreading. It's moving. It's advancing. The Ethiopian eunuch receives Christ. It's spreading. It's moving. Whether people see it or not, it has an invisible quality to it. It's not like violently, forcefully uh, taking a town or a village hostage This is the love of God, the grace of God spreading, the hope of life spreading from town to town, the light of the world. The kingdom permeates the human heart. Just like you, a lot of times you can't watch, like you can't watch a tree. I mean, you can watch a tree grow, right? I mean, you could, okay? You can go out there right now. We got trees. You can watch a tree grow, but you're probably not going to observe and be able to really tell that it is growing, okay? Okay? And this is often how God's kingdom works within us, this process of sanctification. You can't go stare at yourself in the mirror and watch yourself grow spiritually, right? But you can, over time, begin to look back and see God's grace in your life and see how God works in your life to change your mind, to change your thinking, to change your ways as you continue to surrender to Him. The kingdom of God stands in direct opposition to the course of this world stands in direct opposition to the course of this world those who belong to the way live their lives with a completely different set of values than the Romans did or that the world has today before uh, Christianity came onto the scene the world was much different than it is now Lord knows we've got a lot of things going on now as well don't we you can look around you can see the brokenness in this world but because of the presence of Christianity because of the spread of the gospel we see a world that's much different than it was in the days of Caesar 
a skeptical uh, a secular historian by the name of Tom Holland, a historian, not Spider-Man, okay? Uh, Tom Holland uh, was a secular historian, and he's studying the antiquity, studying the, the ancient world. And he began to ask himself the question, why do I have a different set of values today than they had back then? And listen to what he said, talking about the writings of the Apostle Paul. He said, compacted into this very, very small amount of writing was almost everything that explains the modern world and the way the West has then moved on to shape concepts like international law, concepts of human rights, all these kinds of things. Ultimately, they don't go back to Greek philosophers. They don't go back to Roman imperialism. They go back to Paul. His letters, I think, along with the four Gospels, are the most influential, most impactful, most revolutionary writings that have emerged from the ancient world. So as he looks at all of these Greek philosophers, as he looks at all of these famous teachers of the past, he says none of what they said compares to the dynamic transformative message that's presented to us in the writings of these seven letters from a guy in jail who wrote these letters, sent them out to these churches, and the world has never been the same. I'll give you one modern example before we move on to the final lesson. My brother, I guess sometimes God knows when you're, God always knows, but when you're working on something and usually don't receive too many emails from my brother, but got one from my brother. He's this long email and he said that his missions pastor at the church that he was at had been on a mission trip to Poland and was able to dip into Ukraine. And he said while he was there, and I confirmed this because I went and found the guy's blog, uh, the mission pastor said that they learned from uh, they learned that the Ukrainian president Zelensky had recently acknowledged in a speech that 70% of the aid coming into Ukraine was from Christian churches and Christian nonprofit organizations. I want you to think about that. Out of all the nations, out of all the kingdoms in this world, 70% from churches from non prophet Christian organizations, the kingdom of God permeates, it transforms, it looks for war-torn areas, it looks for brokenness, and it brings restoration, it brings healing, it brings redemption. That's just simply what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ does, which brings us to lesson number four. Lesson number four, the kingdom advances through workers of Christ. I want you to notice in these parables, uh, Jesus is the sower. Okay, he, he is the sower, he is the worker, and he scatters the seed, that's us, okay? And like a mustard seed, we're to grow and reproduce as yeast, we're to permeate the world with the way of Jesus. Uh, in another place, a little bit earlier on in Matthew, he said that we are salt, we are light, the whole purpose being that when you put salt and light in an area, it transforms, it exposes I want, if you're in the habit of writing stuff down, let me give you something that... I, has been helpful to me. The kingdom of God advances through kingdom people who embody the way of Jesus, who spread the truth of Christ, and who manifest the life of Jesus. We say it again. The kingdom of God advances through kingdom people who embody the way of Jesus, spread the truth of Jesus, and manifest the life of Jesus. We embody the way of Jesus when we adopt the ethic of his kingdom, the way of his kingdom. 
When we live that out, our behavior, our conduct, we walk in the power of the Spirit, which is radically different than the way of the world. We spread the truth of Jesus, of course, when we go from village to village, just like Dr. William Leslie did so many years ago, not perhaps fully even appreciating the power of what he's sharing, but he's sharing the gospel. He's sharing stories of Christ. He's sharing Bible stories. And we see that as we spread that, it changes a culture and changes hearts and lives. We manifest the life of Jesus when we have the fruit of the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. We have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, and faithfulness. I think the point Jesus is making, a seed... A single seed can make a big difference. A single seed can make a big difference. You are a mustard seed. Maybe just a small congregation could be considered a mustard seed or a small gathering of seeds. And so the point is it can make a big difference in the world. A little yeast can change everything. It can transform an area. Jesus is saying don't be swayed by the unimpressive start by feelings, by uh, what the world might say. This is God's method to change the world, and he's done it. He's done it. It's not just that we're reading this out of Scripture. He's actually done it in real-time history. I want to tell you the story of a man by the name of, I never can say his first name, Adoniram Judson, okay? Adoniram Judson. He felt a call of God to do a pioneering work in Burma. And just so you know, Burma was a dangerous place at the time to share the gospel, uh, wrought with war, anarchy, zero religious tolerance. In fact, many missionaries had gone to Burma before and uh, been very unsuccessful. Christian missionaries up to that point had either died or abandoned the work altogether. And it seemed like that was the way it was going to go for Adoniram Judson. As he went in for six years, he didn't see a convert. For six years. Now, that, that is the entirety of my time here at this church, okay, the entirety of my time here in this area, six years, he did not see one single convert. And I can tell you, having been on mission trips uh, after two weeks and not seeing a convert, I have felt discouraged. There are missionaries right now in the mission field who have been there for months, for years, and haven't seen a convert, and I can assure you they feel discouraged. And this is a helpful message for them, but it's also a helpful message for you. When you have a family member, when you have someone at work, when you have someone you're praying for, or when you just wonder if there's any power in this gospel at all, stories like this are helpful. He he worked for six years before he saw his first convert. During that time, he lost several family members to sickness and illness, He was imprisoned for sharing the gospel with his feet at night, being hung up at night by a bamboo pole. So he suffered for the cause of Christ. But eventually he was able to lead hundreds to Christ, plant multiple churches, and even translate the Bible into the Burmese language. Today, there are over 600,000 followers of Christ in Burma. One man goes in, with the good news of the kingdom, and years later, there are 600,000 followers of Christ in Burma. And here's another interesting side note. He formed the American Baptist Missionary Union, which is the same union that sent Dr. William Leslie to the Democratic Republic of Congo. What's so special about these guys? What's so good about them? What's so impressive about them? They put their 
boots on the same way we do, right? Okay? They're human beings just like you and I. But what they did was they received the call of Christ and they obeyed. They were obedient to do what God had called them to do. And this is our struggle, I believe, in our area. We have so much knowledge. We have an embarrassing wealth of resources and literature. What's the missing element in our discipleship? I think the weakness here is just obedience. That when Christ calls us to do something, kind of like Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls us, he bids us come and die to give our whole hearts to him, to surrender everything to him, and to go and to make a difference in this world. Some of you, you know this book. You've heard the gospel of Christ. You know the Great Commission. You can repeat back to me so many scriptural stories and passages that you have memorized over the years that encourage you, that lift your heart and soul. But the question is, what are you doing with that? Are you going out into the world into this area and transforming it with the good news of Christ. If they can transform whole, whole nations, I know that we can go in as followers of Christ and we can transform our area. Because Jesus himself looked down into the world and he saw us in our brokenness and our darkness and he, being the ideal missionary, came to us. He came to us in love and he went from village to village, town to town, and he hung out with the unimpressive, the outcast meeting the guy at the edge of the village. Everybody's trying to push away. Jesus met with him and he brought healing. He met with Zacchaeus and changed his life. He brought sight to the blind. The deaf could hear, the lame could walk. Good news is preached to the poor. This is what Jesus spent his time doing. And sure, I, I have no doubt there are days of discouragement. He had so many abandon him to the point where when he was crucified on the cross, even his most loyal followers had abandoned him. And yet he died on the cross for our sins. He suffered in our place in order to bring us to God, in order that we might have forgiveness, that we might have everlasting life. And ultimately, three days later, God vindicated the message of his son and the work of his son by raising him up from the dead, proving his victory over sin, death, and the devil. And since that point, it has changed that story that message has changed the world. My question for you today is, have you trusted in Christ? And if you've trusted in him, are you going out on mission to do what Christ called you to do? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. I just want you to reflect on your life and ask yourself, have you surrendered everything to Christ? Have you surrendered all to Christ? Does he have your full allegiance? Does... His cause, have your full devotion and commitment. Gracious Father, I pray over us here today that on this Sunday morning, that as we gather in the name of Christ, that we really begin to reflect on our lives, our way of living, and just what's in our heart, and ask ourselves, are we fully committed to you? Are we doing everything we can to spread your message in this world, to embody the, the way of Christ, to spread the truth of Christ, to manifest the life of Christ? Father, I pray that would be true of every person in this congregation. But even if it's just one today, even if it's just one who comes forward and says, hey, today I'm fully committing to follow Jesus. 
A single seed, we know, Father, can make a huge difference in this world. And so, Lord, I pray over every single person here that they'd reflect in their own life about their commitment to Jesus. Thank you for your grace and for your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. The altar's open. If you want to come trust in Christ today, or if you want to follow through a believer's baptism, or you want to partner with this church and become a member, or maybe you need to come kneel at the altar and say, God, I've been uh, kind of half-hearted in my following of you, and so today I give you my whole heart. I give you everything I have. You might just want to come kneel at the altar and say that to the Lord here today. Whatever the Lord leads you to do, pray that you would respond in obedience right now.